That is what Paul said in Philippians 3 as he addressed his former life, said, I count it all as dung that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. May Christ answer our prayer in the minutes to come. May we know God, the power of the risen Christ. In recent weeks, the state of Kansas has been on center stage in the national news media. Millions of advertising dollars have poured into our state from the outside. Hundreds of news stories have been run on national platforms. And the issue of central concern was the first vote on abortion rights at the state level since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court on June 24th. On our ballot here in Kansas was an amendment named Value Them Both, and the early polling showed that the amendment would likely pass with a 47% to 43% margin, with 10% yet undecided. But as the ballots were counted, as you know by now, the amendment was overturned with a 57% to 43% margin. It's a, a gut punch to the pro-life movement in the state of Kansas, and I would say on the national level. It provides a unique moment of self-evaluation as we as Christians committed to the word try to figure out where are we and where do we go from here. Last Tuesday night at our monthly elders meeting, the other men, as we were winding down our meeting, asked me to consider preaching a sermon addressing the issue of abortion, which I've I've never done directly from the pulpit here. Obviously touched on the issues of life and of abortion and murder in other sermons, but never a whole sermon on it. And the men asked me, would you consider doing that as we as a church think through where we're at and how we move forward now after the overturning of that amendment? We as elders have very much agreed that this is a teachable moment and we need to strike while the iron is hot. You're thinking about this. You've been confronted with this. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors that you've been inundated with, a lot of text messages you've had to read of propaganda, a lot of phone calls you've avoided, a lot of billboards and TV commercials and social media things that have come across your eyes. That You, you need the purifying work of the Word of God to help you think through all of these things, as do I. I'm sure you have noticed that we as elders have not said much about the value of them both amendment up to this point. We didn't say hardly anything before the vote. I want to address that for a minute. The reason we didn't do that is because we did not have uniform agreement as elders on the amendment itself. All of us, to be clear, hate abortion. All of us as elders think it is absolute murder, that it needs to be condemned and dealt with under just law. All of us want to see it abolished in our state and in our country. Some of our elders thought that the amendment was a good next step to incrementally shutting down the abortion industry. Others of our elders couldn't support the amendment because of its wording to regulate abortion instead of abolishing abortion. And beyond that, the the wording of the amendment that left the door open to canonize abortion in our state constitution was problematic for some of our elders. I was one of those elders who had serious concerns about the amendment. In fact, I've had several folks, both from our body and from bodies in the area, who have sought me out and asked me, hey, I heard you're voting no, which I don't entirely know how they heard that. And it doesn't really matter. What matters is that they called me 
And I really appreciate that. This is how church life should work. When we hear something about a brother or a sister that concerns us, and we, we don't know how to deal with it, we don't know how to think about it, we should pursue that brother or sister. So I'm so thankful for those who did that very thing. And I hope you would do that with me if ever you heard me saying or pursuing something that you were concerned about. So anyways, I want you to know I did not vote no on the amendment, nor did I vote yes on the amendment. I, in good conscience, could not vote for either. I'm happy to explain that to you later and help you understand my reasoning there, and you can correct me where I'm wrong. I'm open to reason there. I just want you to know where I was at. This sermon is not about that. We can talk about that another time. However you handled your vote on the amendment, we as elders thought it was a matter of conscience for the Christian. We thought you could be right before the Lord as you wrestled with truth and how it applied to the situation and vote yes. We thought you could be right before the Lord, wrestle with this issue and not vote yes or no. We even think you could be right before the Lord, wrestling with truth as it applied to the situation and vote no, although I couldn't have done that and be right with the Lord. We thought it was an issue of Christian conscience, which is why we did not tell you how to vote on this issue. All of that is in the past. Because no matter how you chose to handle the amendment on August 2nd, the fact that it got blindingly overturned, like amazingly by overwhelming numbers, should be a gut punch to you. It should be a devastating blow to your desire to see truth upheld and righteousness and justice legislated by our governing officials to see that an amendment like this was so overwhelmingly overturned. It's a fitting moment then, I think, to evaluate and assess a few things relating to abortion in our own thinking and in our own practice. That's what the elders have asked me to do this morning, and I happily, though frightfully, agree. In this teachable moment, in the wake of the value of them both amendment being defeated, what biblical truths then should guide us forward? I want to break my answer down into three categories. I'm going to move fast because I don't want to be here till two. I'm going to try to work hard to not be running you over and carrying you along. There is a lot to say here. The first is to biblically evaluate our view of abortion, then our view of culture, and third, our engagement with culture. You've heard a lot of voices telling you a lot of things. What does the voice of God say about these things? How does God want us to think about abortion and the culture of death that is pervasive in our land? Well, turn with me to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. I think most of these truths that I'm going to share this morning are familiar with you and to you, but I want to remind you of them. Have the ministry of the Apostle Peter, the ministry of reminding We need to shore up the foundations of truth in our minds and in our hearts. The fortress of truth has been bombarded by the constant shelling of the enemy in recent months, right? You you have been bombarded with error and deception and wrong thinking for months on end. They have won the victory. The shelling has stopped for the moment. So let's, like good soldiers, inspect the foundation of our fortress. And let's fill in any cracks in our thinking. So we're ready to battle another day. In Genesis 9, God, speaking to Noah as he comes off the ark, reestablishes life in a post-flood world. He and his family are all the humans who exist on the face of the earth. And God calls him and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth. 
And to protect that reality, he says this to them in verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The standards of conduct and the standards of justice in God's world are set by God himself. The sovereign one who rules over his creation gets to determine what is right, both in conduct and in justice when conduct goes against the standard. What's the standard? Clearly in Genesis 9, if someone sheds the blood of another, then he is to have his life taken in just retribution. We see here in this command the preciousness of life the high demand of justice for those who shed innocent blood. What what I especially want you to see is the basis for the command. This rule of justice is founded upon something that is unmovable and unshakable. It is that everyone is made in the image of God. Justice demands such a high price because everyone is made in the image and likeness of God. Of God. So the question before us as we think about abortion is when does that occur? When does a person become one that is made in the image of God and therefore should not be murdered? Our culture of death, our culture of personal affluence and convenience, our culture that thinks it should be able to do whatever it wants with no consequence, would tell you that the thing growing in the womb of the mother needs to be redefined. They, they seek to muddy the waters and make that baby expendable. They, they seek to dehumanize that which is clearly human. In the same culture in which we defend turtle eggs on some faraway shore from being destroyed by human infringement, knowing and defending that that is life and should be left alone, in that same culture we dehumanize a growing baby in the womb of its mother using deceitful terminology, removing humanity from the baby in the womb. So we say things in our culture like it's an unwanted pregnancy, as if that changes the nature of the conversation. We call it a fetus to remove the human element from it. We name it a clump of cells. We say it's a part of the woman's body over which she herself has autonomy. She has the choice to do with that what she so chooses because it's her body, her choice. Our culture has sold us the bill of goods that this clump of cells is not really human unless it's wanted by the parents. Therefore, if a baby is conceived at an inconvenient time for the parents, and if they don't want the child, then that clump of cells growing in the womb of the mother can be disposed of through abortion with little or no thought. Or if this pregnancy happens through some ungodly and horrific means like rape or incest, then the blight of the conception in the world's thinking should condemn that pregnancy to termination because that would be an awful way for anyone to enter into life. Therefore, don't let them enter. And I must say, this kind of deceived and depraved thinking is prevalent within the pro-life movement itself. We need to be honest with ourselves. People within the pro-life movement are saying these things. You need to know that. 
And instead of just buying what they're selling, you need to think biblically about these things. So did you know that most pro-lifers are supportive of an exception clause in abortion laws? In other words, most pro-lifers say that abortion should be illegal except in cases of of rape and incest and where the life of the mother is supposedly at risk. Can I just ask, when when does that life in the womb become made in the image of God and therefore considered as murder in the eyes of God? When does that happen? What does scripture say? John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Paul, in Athens in Acts 17, as he confronts them with the God that they don't know, says this God is the God who made the world and everything in it. This is Acts 17, 24, and 25. He made everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, And everything. If that is true, we should expect to see evidence. If it is God's work at the moment, it becomes a living organism. He grants that organism in the womb of its mother to be alive. If that's God's work, which is what we just read in John 1 and Acts 17, then we should expect to see that attributed to God throughout the scriptures. And indeed it is. Genesis 4 verse 1, right after the fall, the curse is pronounced... What is the very next verse? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. In other words, life was in her womb. A living organism brought about through the means of conception. Human sexuality in marriage producing a living organism in the body of Eve. And what does she say? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She herself understood, this is God's work in me. Genesis 25, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Conception in the womb of the mother is the work of God. Ruth 4, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Psalm 127, verse 3, the psalmist states this as plainly as any other text. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward from the Lord. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, the psalmist says, for you, speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. What stage is he talking about of development there? Every last one of them. From the moment the knitting begins to the moment the knitting ends. 
All of it is the knitting work of the God of heaven. And so the psalmist says, I praise you. I don't praise my mother, my father, for making me live. He understood this goes beyond them. They were the means God chose to use to give him life. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Can we agree the scriptures are exceedingly clear here? Exceedingly clear. That clump of cells starting at conception and developing into a heartbeat at four weeks old developing into fingers and hands in a matter of days. Something so clearly human, so clearly living, that that beautiful life is created in the image of God by the very power of God for the very purpose of God. This is why scriptures speak of the growing child in the womb with the same term scripture uses of people outside of the womb, known as children or adults. The same words. So in Luke 1, when Mary happens into Elizabeth's home, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt within her. That word baby is the same one used in Luke 2 and verse 12, when the angels appear to the shepherds and say, go into Bethlehem and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Same word. The placement of the child didn't matter. In the womb of Elizabeth or in the cradle in Bethlehem, they were both babies in the sight of the Lord. This is why in Exodus 21, 23 to 25, we're told that the penalty for striking a pregnant mother causing the death of the child in her womb shall be life for life. By the way, we do that at least in part in our own land. We prosecute people who kill babies in the womb. And what seems to make the difference there in our society is if the mother wanted the baby or not. That's ungodly. That's deceitful. That's sinful. That's wrong. That baby is a baby whether the mother wants the baby or not. It is a work of God by the power of God for the purpose of God. This is the same penalty, by the way, of killing an adult as I read in Genesis 9. Psalm 139, 15 to 16, the psalmist talks about the knowledge of the Lord while he was being formed in the mother's womb. He says that God knew every one of his days and planned them out before he was ever formed. That's exactly how scripture talks about us outside of the womb. God knows the number of our days and and plans them and appoints them in, in seasons and times, as Paul said in Acts 17 in his sermon in Athens. Also in the womb, God appoints Isaiah to the ministry as a prophet. He said that in Isaiah 49.1. While I was in my mother's womb, I was appointed to this task. God also does that to people outside of the womb. Amos, namely the prophet in Amos 7.14 and 15. He says, you're going to be my prophet. I was a shepherd and God coerced me, commanded me, and called me to be his prophet. Same terminology. It didn't matter if they were in or out of the womb. It was God's work and God's purpose. It's a question, how does life begin? Answer, by the sovereign power of God who creates and sustains all things. Question, when does life begin? Answer, at the very moment of conception in the womb of the mother. Question, 
when life begins at conception, what makes that life significant? Answer, because it is made in the image and likeness of God by God. Therefore, any contraceptive or any procedure which terminates life in the womb, according to Scripture, is murder before the Lord. Are there any biblical exceptions to this? What about the the awful realities of of rape or incest? Should those who pursue an abortion be prosecuted under the law rather than covered by the law? Whose job is it to determine these things in a society like ours? Well, to give you some rapid-fire answers here, no, there is never a situation in which murdering someone is the right solution to a problem. No matter how terrible or awful the situation is, we would never justify this for life outside the womb. Hey, that poor third grader, his dad is AWOL and his mom is addicted to drugs, we probably should just end his life. It'd be better for him. We would never say that. We would never allow for that. How silly and frankly idiotic to let that kind of thinking infiltrate our understanding of abortion. And yes, those who perform or pursue an abortion should be prosecuted. I'm not a lawyer, nor a judge, nor would I ever want to be. There are, should be room in the law, and there is, for merciful and sensible sentencing of mothers who pursue abortions. That really is not the problem in the U.S. right now. Sensible and merciful sentencing of those seeking to murder their child. That's not where we're at. We're not even doing that at all. We must, as a society, pursue the criminalization of abortion as the only solution which truly upholds the law of God. I say this because in the pro-life movement, this is up for grabs. And you need to determine whose standard will you stand on in the conversation within the pro-life movement. So did you know that in May of this year, there was a bill that made it to the Louisiana State Legislature? The House was prepared to vote on this bill. It was a bill that abolished the practice of abortion in the state of Louisiana in any and every case. It also was a bill that made it criminal to seek an abortion or to provide an abortion. The bill leading up to its vote looked like it was going to pass. There was major support in the state of Louisiana for this bill, one of the only ones like it in the nation. The night before the bill went to vote, there was a massive letter that shot down the bill. The next day it lost massively in the House as it was voted on. Do you know who wrote the letter? 70 pro-life entities nationally known who wrote to say this is not how the pro-life movement should be represented in this conversation. Namely, the National Right to Life, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, The March for Life Action and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops wrote this letter among 66 others. And the major issue that spurred on such a national outcry to get this bill stopped and voted down was that a mother seeking an abortion would be considered breaking the law. Beloved, most pro-lifers cannot stomach the thought of pursuing a woman seeking an abortion in a criminal way. The conversation has turned to where we now say that those women are victims of circumstance and poverty and absentee fatherhood. 
And indeed, those things are often true for those seeking an abortion. I don't mean to deny the realities. And those are awful and terrible realities that need to be addressed by the church. We need to work hard to address people in those situations with the gospel first as we minister to physical needs as well. But I ask you, what is the scriptural answer to a woman who becomes pregnant in a situation in which it is not ideal? What is God's standard here? Is she a murderer if she seeks to take the life of the child growing in her womb? Well, based on everything we've already covered, that life in her womb is given to her by God. Even if it has been given to her in the vortex of awful circumstances. Not every situation of rape or incest leads to a pregnancy, correct? Meaning when it does, God has ordained for that woman to be pregnant. I don't understand all the mysteries of the providence and the sovereignty of God. I just know that he has created life in his image by his power in that womb. And that life should be covered by the standard of law. I realize there are tricky legal issues to deal with in the conversation of criminalizing abortion. But the foundation of principle must be settled before we build the house of practice. We're so far down the road in the house of practice, it's a mess because our foundation is off. Let's get back to biblical foundations in the conversation. Let's say what God says about this and let's build from there. And then the question, whose job is it to uphold these laws of God in society? Well, very clearly, the Lord has established human government to do that very thing. This is important because there are many within the Christian community who are calling us as a church to be the voice of of justice and law, and while separating government and church, they're getting awful close to establishing church as a governing authority over society. This is not God's way. God's way is for human government to wield the sword of justice. This is Romans 13, 1 through 7. I will not take time to read it this morning. You know it. But God has vested his authority in those governing authorities for the sake of exercising justice, namely to be a terror to evildoers and to be a blessing to those who do what is right. That is the clear statement of Romans 13. Who determines what is right and true? Those governing authorities, society at large, the winds of culture blowing wherever they will on any given day? No, God himself. Under his authority there to rule with and by his truth and the government is to keep his standard. Now you know full well that is not how things are being run in our country or in our state Instead of upholding the clear, obvious truth that life begins at conception, that life beginning at conception should then have equal protection under the law, which, by the way, we already have in our state constitution. Our culture, denying that, demands abortion at any stage of development. There's even talk now in states like California that mothers should have the right to kill their newborns within a month of birth. 
if after having them out of the womb they decide they are no longer wanted. This is decadence, depravity, awful, wicked sinfulness. It is satanic. Satan is a liar and a murderer. And he has largely won the day in culture at large. He is lying and he is killing. We live in a sin-saturated age where people expect to be able to have sexual encounters with whomever, whenever, with no lasting consequence. And they expect the state to help them deal with any consequence that might come from their choice to have this encounter. If you're under the delusion that our state or even our country or even our own town, Newton, Kansas, was still inhabited by a majority of folks who lived with some sort of biblically informed worldview, the massive overturning of value than both should have recorrected your view. We no longer live in that kind of culture, not even in nice, homey, Midwest Newton, Kansas. Even here, the enemy has infiltrated, deceived, and is destroying. So how should we think about culture? What should be the, the biblical approach to our culture? What's the biblical evaluation of where we are, of how we got here, and of where we go from here? The testimony of Scripture on this, I think, is abundantly clear. I think it helps us see God's assessment of humanity. It encourages us and helps us know how we should engage. Some would t- tell you that culture is going to get better and better, that the church is going to make inroads into culture And that in making inroads into culture that we're eventually going to turn the tide that massive amounts of people are going to come under the rule and reign of Christ and that ultimately we're going to bring in the millennium of Jesus, the, the reign of Jesus, doing the work of Jesus under his authority. He'll eventually come to earth and finish the job. But many will turn to the Lord. There have certainly been pockets of this that have happened throughout human history. And church history, there's been many occasions in which the church experienced the extension and the overflow of the grace of God, thinking namely of the Reformation, the great missionary movement of the 18th and 19th centuries, in which whole cultures were turned upside down by the powerful message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Those cultures, and many of them, still feel the effects of the work of God and his grace through the church on culture in those days. Our own nation, founded upon the principles of truth, rooted in Reformation truth, recovered by the grace of God. But as we've just seen, our society has by and large turned from those absolute truths and those principles of biblical revelation and now is operating under a humanistic and hedonistic worldview. Humanistic meaning man has all the answers, solutions, and uh, ways to get forward and hedonistic in that your pleasure is king. Do what you like and love the most. So how should we think about our culture? What's the biblical evaluation of where we're at, how we got here, and where we go from here? Well, the scripture says this, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. The reality is we're in the minority, should expect to be in the minority for most of human 
history. There will not be some great turning at the end where the many enter in on the path of life. That's not what this text says. Few there be that find it. Jesus reiterates that in Matthew 24 on the Olivet Discourse. He says, for nation, speaking of the last days, which is a, a very clear marker that he's speaking about the time before his coming. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Not a pretty picture speaking of culture, but speaking the truth. Lawlessness increasing the love of many for the Lord growing cold. Paul repeats and expands upon this in 2 Timothy 3, where he says, but understand this, that in the last days, speaking again right before the return of our Lord, there will come times of difficulty. What does he mean by that, times of difficulty? He goes on to explain it. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. That is 2022, state of Kansas, in the United States of America. This is God's clear revelation about how things are going to go in human history as we move toward the final day. In assessing our culture, then I ask you, is abortion our main problem in society? It is our greatest evil It is the Holocaust of our day, exceeding 10 times the amount of lives taken in Hitler's Holocaust. We have not just gone past Hitler, whom every sensible person denounces as wicked, evil, and awful. We're not at 7 million people who've been killed. We're over 63 million lives ripped from what should be the safest place on the planet the womb of the mother sucked out and disposed of or sold for profit this is a godless day but is it the main problem well you know the answer it's the rotten fruit of a much deeper problem This is Romans 1. We're seeing it lived before us. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've chosen to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We've honored the bodies of men over the reality, nature, and essence of God. We've placed ourselves and our sexual freedom on the throne. We've removed God from it. We've denied his revelation, which says we can do whatever we want without consequence. When he's clearly said, you cannot sin and have no consequence neither in this life nor in the one to come. We've said, you're a liar. We don't believe you. We'll do it our way and we'll see how it goes. The greater evil here is man's rejection of and rebellion against God of which abortion is exhibit A. 
Francis Schaeffer, a name you should know, books you should read, has written a book called How Should We Then Live? He wrote it in the 70s, late 70s, assessing human history as it related to current culture. He saw the collapse of Western civilization in his own day, the 70s and 80s, and he helpfully diagnosed that demise by linking it to the rejection of God and his truth. Why are we seeing the chaos we're seeing in our world? Because we have abandoned truth, the clear revelation of God. And when you do that, society at large becomes absolute. You remove God from being the absolute, and now society becomes the absolute. And so sociologically, as a group of people, we determine together what is the truth of the day. What should guide and determine our practices as we relate to one another in society at large? We say this is good, this is right, this should be defended, this should be celebrated. God removed and minimized, man takes center stage, pursuing human autonomy, the freedom to live however we want, whenever we want, with no consequence. This moral degeneracy produces chaos in society. Society cannot function with chaos, can it? So somebody has to step into the vacuum that our moral degeneracy has produced. This is all Schaefer. I'm digesting it to you. These are his thoughts. I'm giving them to you. Something has to fill the vacuum that we have taken God out of. Because you can't have chaos in society. We can't get along with one another that way. And so the powers that be, the power of authority, technocrats, politicians, officials, people with massive amounts of money, step into that vacuum and they deem what is acceptable and appropriate in culture, controlling culture to their own ends for their own purposes so that they can continue their plush lifestyle of power, authority, and affluence. This means then that the standards of conduct of what's right, wrong, good to be celebrated change on the whim of the cultural moment and they're enforced by politicians and judges operating with a godless worldview, listening to the voice of society, helping them determine in the moment what is right and what is wrong. And this is not new to human history. This was Schaefer's point in his book. This is not the first time we've seen this. This has happened again and again, namely in the fall of the Roman Empire. Near the end of his book, he summarizes Edward Gibbon, who was a scholar of the, 16th, or the 18th century, excuse me, he wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said that the following five attributes marked Rome at its end. First, a mounting love of show and luxury, that is affluence. Second, a widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. Third, an obsession with sex. Fourth, freakishness in the arts masquerading as originality and enthusiasms pretending to be creativity. And you do not need to go into an art museum to see the freakishness of the arts in our day. Turn your TV on. Freakishness in the arts, masquerading as originality. Enthusiasms pretending to be creativity. Fifth, an increased desire to live off the state. Schaefer says, it all sounds so familiar. He wrote that in the late 70s, 45 years ago. All of this to say we are today seeing the demise of Western culture before our very eyes. 
not new to the experience of the church, nor is it a surprise to the scriptures, is it? Cultures and societies will come and go. Even the best of them built upon the framework of biblical truth will eventually give way to the sinful rebellion and rejection of mankind of ultimate truth who is God. And that is what we're seeing before our very eyes unfold in our own town, in our own county, in our own state, in our own nation. So I ask you lastly, how should we biblically evaluate our engagement with culture? If that's true, how should we then live? What do we do from here? In our pre-millennial eschatology that we espouse and teach as a church, frankly, we're prone to curl up, cuddle up, and bide our time. Be honest with yourself about this. I had to be. Knowing that the Lord's returning soon, in the rapture of the church, rescuing us before the day of the great tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, how easy it is for us to curl up, cuddle up, and bide our time. Is that what scripture calls you to do? Is that the voice of scripture to you? What should we do? Four ideas for you as we close our time together quickly. Know who you are, know the problem, know the solution, and then pray and push, pray and push. Know who you are. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says to us, you are like me. I am the light of the world. You also are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Many things that salt and light do, but of those many things, they both penetrate and preserve. They penetrate and preserve. Light shines into the darkness. It penetrates the darkness. Salt penetrates into the decay and pushes it back. Light pervades dark areas and brings the knowledge of truth into the dark room of ignorance and rebellion. Ephesians 5 is a helpful text here. We don't have time to read it, but says you're not to participate in the, the ways of darkness. You once walked in the dark. You're not in the dark anymore. Don't participate in the ways of darkness anymore, but rather expose them as you walk as children of the light. And then he goes on to say, this requires great wisdom. Walk wisely, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, for the days are evil, he says. Amen and amen. This is our day. We're light and salt. We're also in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, ambassadors. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors are, are sent forth from the throne of authority with a job. Go represent me in a foreign place. Speak my mind and my truth. Do as I would do if I were there. Act as my emissary in that situation. And what namely did Paul say that was to the church in Corinth? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For he, for, the, for our sake, excuse me, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul modeling Great Commission living for every believer who would follow him. Be a spokesman for Christ. We don't primarily represent a pro-life movement or a political agenda or a plan to make America great again. We represent Jesus Christ, ambassadors of an eternally great kingdom. We are to proclaim him and his truth, representing him in every situation for his glory, imploring the world to be reconciled to God through Christ. Philippians 3 verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of a of a far off otherworldly kingdom. And when we're in that situation of exile as Daniel and the exiles found themselves in Babylon, we're to, we're to work for the peace and the prosperity of our current land. That's right and good. But our hope is not in that current land. We long for the other kingdom to come. For the king of that kingdom's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven as he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. We must never forget that our spiritual passport is stamped with heaven's authentication. We are a foreign outpost on foreign soil which is terribly hostile to our motherland and our king. It is so easy to make an idol out of politics and to lose hope over the current trajectory of our country. And it is hopeless, humanly speaking. There is no hope. Come to grips with that before the Lord. You will not get the America of the 70s back. You will not get the America of 2009 back. 2007, I don't care. You, you put the clock wherever you want. It's gone. And that is the reality you are faced with now is to live as citizens of another country, of a heavenly one. But you must know this will be hard. 1 Peter 4, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live every day as spiritual foreigners in a far-off land. Don't drink the spiritual water of this foreign land as it were. When in Mexico, don't drink that water lest you get sick. When on earth as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, don't drink the spiritual water. It will pollute you and destroy you. Be situationally aware of the warfare that rages around you and be honorable to the Lord in all that you do while you wait for the Lord to return, glorifying him both now and on that coming day. Second, know the problem. Know who you are. Know the problem. The problem is not primarily a political issue. When you talk with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with that random person in the barber shop or in the store you strike up that conversation with. Value them both comes up and I would encourage you to strike while the iron's hot with people. It's still on their minds. Bring it up. Ask them how they think about that. What their thoughts are on about that. But as you do, know the problem. The problem is not how they voted on value them both. 
The problem is not how they think about the issue of abortion. The deeper problem is, if they are not in Christ, they are rebelling against God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, listen, like the rest of mankind. This is who you're dealing with. People who continue on in the flesh. They need you to love them enough to know that their problem is not a political one. It is a spiritual one. You need to love them enough being reminded that that is exactly what you used to be. And you, by God's kindness, have found an escape. They are simply acting according to their nature. So when you get into that conversation with someone about abortion and about your stance on abortion, don't let your blood boil that they see it differently than you and hold to a godless view of it. Understand that they're acting in accordance with their nature. And they need you to point them to a solution outside of themselves. The bedrock of the issue as you drill down deeper into the heart is that they are at enmity with God. Know the problem. Second, third, excuse me, know the solution. Know the solution. What's the solution to someone who's at enmity with God? It's always Jesus Christ. Always. And ever, only Jesus Christ. Correct? If you're at enmity with God, you're at war with God, what is the solution to your warfare? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Only God can rescue lost sinners. Only God can rebirth sons of disobedience to make them sons of his spiritual heritage. His prescribed means to do that, however, is you and me. We are his ambassadors in spiritual warfare. We are under enemy siege. We're behind enemy lines and we're taking casualties. We're full on commando here. We're under constant attack as we seek to obey our commander-in-chief waiting for the coming day when he will arrive with his heavenly host and fight him off, take us home, and end the battle. And until then, we are seeking to grab as many as we can and bring them in with us to rescue them too. And we do this with the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, righteous, sacrificed, substitute for us, Savior of sin. Lastly, pray and push. Pray and push. This battle is too great for us. Responsibility for you to be a faithful witness who is useful to the Lord is too much for you. It's too
too much for me. And so we must pray and push on all of the doors that the Lord puts before us. This is exactly what Paul models for us in Colossians 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He's already suffering for the sake of the gospel. He's saying, pray that I be more faithful and I have more opportunities for the very gospel that has me in jail. That I may make it clear, he says, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul asked them to pray for him, that he would have an opportunity, and that he would have openness, clarity. He knows this is God's work. He knows that God loves to answer that prayer of humble submission to his will. And Paul calls the Colossian church to push themselves. He doesn't say, just pray for me and just keep praying. Stay in your closet, pray for me, and I'll do the the heavy lifting here. He says, pray for me, and then he says, push yourselves. Walk wisely here. Let your grace be seasoned with salt and full of grace. Let your speech be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Walk in wisdom using the, the evil days the best you can. Have speech that's useful to every person, that you know how to answer them in light of their sinfulness and God's grace. Clear instruction here is that you would push yourselves to walk more wisely and speak more graciously and be saltier to those God wants to use you as witnesses to. So how do you do this? Before I answer that question, I ask you, are you willing? I mean that. Are you willing? Are you praying about this? What's the name of the last unbeliever you prayed for? Do you have a list of names? God's put you where he's put you with the people he's put around you so you can be an ambassador for Christ. You know people that none of the rest of us will ever meet. You can't pray for all of them. But who has God opened doors with? Who have you had spiritually related conversations with? Who do you have enough of a relationship with to to pursue more of a conversation with? Who can you ask hard questions of and let them reply with honesty and care? You respond with truth, graciously and kindly. Pray for them. Do you plan strategically to to see these unbelievers and to interact with them at key moments? Do you plan in your budget ways to use your money to interact with them and bless them so that you can share the gospel with them? Do you think through and pray through what you're going to say before you go see them? Do you ask the Lord to open a door for you that you can be clear and have courage to walk through it? Because if, like me, your knees are knocking, your blood is rushing, your head can hardly think in those moments. Left to ourselves, we will fail every time. We need the Lord's help here. Do you ask the Lord for the words to speak in that very moment? 
Are you willing? Will you obey the Lord? Will you be an ambassador in a culture that is running towards hell? And then I ask you, what's the last book you read on evangelism? The question before us is, how do I do this? How how do I speak wisely into a world that's living in sin? There are so many resources. I could give you a few helpful tips. You need more than that. What's the last book you read on evangelism? Why haven't you bought another one? It's the best $20 you're going to spend. Buy two books on evangelism. I've got... I can think right now of a list of seven books that would be helpful for you to equip you and encourage you in the task of being a witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. It does not mean that I am a great evangelist. It just means that I'm slowly, slowly progressing because I don't want to be okay with this. I fear men. I'd rather not speak for Christ. I'd rather have a political conversation than a spiritual one. That is my flesh, not the spirit of God in me, and I must turn from it regularly and seek God's help to overcome it. So join me as we walk together in a wicked world waiting for Christ's return, seeking to be soberly responsible and wise in our present situation. In this moment, God has called us to be an ambassadors for our king. There's a lot of grace-empowered work to do. Our culture is satanic, ripening for God's judgment and destruction, and it is coming. God will not be mocked. Whatever our culture sows, that will our culture reap. Know it. Take it to the bank of faith. It's coming. He may allow for a reprieve, another season of mercy to us. I don't know, but the train has left the station. Our culture implodes around us, and I say to you, what a time to be alive. This is your moment. God put you here for such a time as this. He redeemed you by the blood of his son, not so you could hunker down and ride out your days in peace and prosperity, untouched by the world's troubles, waiting for Jesus to return. No, he saved you so you could glorify him by being salt and light. God Let's pray. Oh, Father, I fear I have not been as encouraging or kind as you would have me to be. Where I have flung the sword and injured the flock, would you forgive me and heal them? But where these wounds have been the faithful wounds of a friend who loves them and of the word accurately handled and proclaimed, Would you show us the way forward, following Christ courageously, faithfully, joyfully, humbly? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.